someone like Susie, who of no blood relationship came in and in so many ways rescued me. And it's sometimes people that aren't part of your family. You know, there's so many, you can step in and save someone and you know, acts of kindness can make all the difference in the world. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge. Today, I have an interesting guest that reached out to me because we are both in the same field of mental health awareness, breaking the stigma. Her name is Rachel Steinman. Rachel Steinman has a very interesting podcast that I love the name of the podcast. It's called Dear Family. I feel like Dear Family says it all. It's like a letter or something like that. And um, I was so honored when she reached out to me because I do believe that with mental health together is better and we don't have enough podcasts out there to break the stigma. So each podcast has its own message and its own awareness and its own story that together we can really hope to break the stigma and bring more conversation to this topic. So I was really so excited when she reached out and said, let's do something together. And I'm like, sure, let's do this. So welcome, welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's really a pleasure, a pleasure. Rachel lives in California. I live in New York and we're both moms and we're both correct. And we're both very passionate on the topic of mental health awareness. So I want you to give my listeners a little bit of a background on your podcast and how you came about um, this idea of the podcast and why is it called Dear Family? It's called Dear Family because we all have complicated families. Whether or not you yourself suffer from mental health issues, and by the way, I probably shouldn't say suffer. If you have a mental illness or you don't, undoubtedly there's someone in your family that does, and it affects the entire family. It affects loved ones. And it's called Dear Family because it is like a love letter to our family, and we don't want to write our family off when they suffer or they have issues or they push us away. We want to be there for them. And I think that by sharing, like you are, our personal stories and and this is also from the standpoint of loved ones. It doesn't just have to be someone themselves suffering because I, in fact, do not have mental health issues, but I have a family of five generations of mental health issues that resulted in four suicides. And my mom is bipolar. And um, I, I, I'm going to quickly just explain how I got to this point. So I was a kindergarten and first grade teacher. I was raising two beautiful daughters. And my grandmother, Susie, who was not related to me by blood, but was my grandfather's third wife, she passed away. And when she passed away, this was 24 years after my beloved grandfather jumped from his high rise. I was just 16 at the time. And for 24 years, I thought, how could somebody do that when they seemingly had it all? He had his physical health. He had a lot of business success. He had loved ones. He was still golfing and playing tennis and friends all over the world. And, you know, I just, I couldn't understand how someone could do that. So 24 years after he passed away, I was finally allowed to go back into this high rise and I found his manuscript that he ironically titled Survivor or the Bounce or the Bounce Back Man. And I had been led to believe it no longer existed. So there I was, 40 years old, wow. in this beautiful high rise in Beverly Hills that overlooked, you know, the Hollywood sign and the hills of Bel Air. And, and I just couldn't believe the manuscript and was not expecting to discover that. 
and it kind of opened up a lot of um, secrets and, and a lot of questions and dark family secrets because there was a lot of mental illness in the family that nobody ever talked about. Yeah. And so my grandfather, his father also died by suicide. And just to be to let you know, I ended up writing this memoir to continue his story that I I title a double memoir and I'm still working on it. Um, but it's it's been such an incredible cathartic process. But back to my grandfather's father, he had made all of this money doing of all things canning mushrooms. He was the first person to can mushrooms without, um, you know, people getting botulism and he sold it to Sears Roebuck. Anyways, during the Great Depression, he lost all his money. And my grandfather, who grew up on Park Avenue and was chauffeured by a Rolls Royce, Mm -hmm. really believed, okay, well, now my father has lost everything. I'm going to work my entire life to gain that wealth again. And he did. He became a very... Yes, he did. But in his mind, it was money that was what his father needed for happiness. And I think my grandfather thought the same thing. But truth be told, there truly was mental illness, but that was never discussed. So my grandfather worked his whole life and became a very successful real estate mogul in New York and Manhattan specifically, and had the big house in Scarsdale and the beautiful wife who was my grandmother. Sadly, I would never meet this grandmother, my mom's mom, because she also died by suicide by <gasps> swallowing a bottle of pills with a bottle of alcohol. So you can see why I was wow. like blown away when I found And I, I had always kind of been embarrassed by my own mother, not ever realizing that she was running from a mental illness diagnosis because obviously she didn't want to be like her own parents, sadly, who both died by suicide. And I mean, you can only imagine. So as you can tell, it's a very kind of scandalous story in that there were affairs and um, substance abuse issues to mask the mental illness. And I, I, at this point, I'm 40 years old. I'm ready to kick my mom out of my life because my mom is bipolar and she's doing things that she's done my whole life, which is embarrassing me, which happens from mania and just behaviors that, you know, are come from, you know, not really thinking clearly. And she was doing things in front of my daughters and saying things. And I just, you know, I always loved her, but at that point, at 40 years old, I was ready to say, mom, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. And what ended up happening is I started writing and it really saved me and helped me understand her and it saved our relationship. And subsequently, she has been properly diagnosed as bipolar, which of course, is hind- hindsight is so obvious. And I, I know I've been talking a lot, but it really has been this incredible journey and incredible process. From there, I started writing essays and some of my essays got me into invited to be on podcasts. And I realized what an incredible platform mm-hmm. this is. Yeah. And when I was sharing my stories, and I'm sure you find this as well, so many people were coming to me and saying, I had no idea. Wow. I had no idea that you had this because... Yeah. In high school, you you know you were a popular girl, and right. you had boyfriends, and you and and I and just by sharing my own story and kind of getting rid of the shame and telling the truth helped others come forward. Wow, I have goosebumps from that. <laughs> I, have I know. I, I'm sorry, I, I talk so fast. No, I just I'm processing because I have so many questions. I have so many questions, so I'm going to yes. try to remember all my questions. As yeah, you. don't worry, I'll okay. lead you too. <laughs> okay, okay. So I want to go back. You said it's generations and you yes. how many deaths by suicides? Four? Okay. So the four would be starting that I know of, of course, would be starting with my great grandfather, Felix, who was the mushroom canner right. who, who afforded the home on Park Avenue. And then after that, his younger son, who is my grandfather's brother, this would mm. be my mom's uncle who she never met. His name was Rudy. He died by suicide. And I, and, you know, I learned this in the manuscript. Um, Sadly, he was put into a mental institution and he swallowed rat poison of all things. I'm uh, crazy, crazy. 
And I think, to be honest, what it sounds like from my grandfather's notes, because he didn't come out and say it, I think he was a homosexual. So I think he was struggling really? with his sexuality. Really? And then hit, and then my grandfather's wife died by suicide when my mom was just 14. And there's, and there's a lot of backstory behind that. She was this beautiful artist and she mm-hmm. suffered polio. And, but when she came out, I, that's when her bipolar, I think, really began. And my grandfather called her Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And the disturbing part about all of that is that I look just like her and my daughters look like her and my mom looks like her. So, you know, part of what my book is about is what is it that we inherit? You know, we can inherit mental illness, of course, but we can also inherit those traumas that get passed down. Did you do research on the the inheritance part? Like, yeah, I've done some research. Yes, of course. And bipolar is one of the most irritable diseases, mental health diseases. If if you know, but so yeah, those were the four. It was my grandfather, my great uncle. So if you look at it this way, it was my grandfather, his father, his brother, his wife. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then then with that, there were a lot of drug addictions, including my beloved brother. So they're all trying to run away from the pain and the suffering. That's right. They're trying to mask the whatever they are unable to, you know, deal with. And back then, especially, right, like, you know, in the 50s, my grandmother had electric shock therapy, but it was kind of, I, I, I feel like it was a little bit more barbaric then. Right. Um, and, and, you know, hormones weren't discussed and her right. son had just left for college. You know, who knows how things could have been different if it was this day and age. Wow. So your great grandfather, how old was he when he died by suicide? First of all, I, I noticed that you know to say died by suicide. I was educated last week to say died by suicide. Did you always know that, that it's not? No, no, it's funny. Um, I did not always know that. I, I would always say commit suicide. Right. And now I don't because obviously commit has a negative connotation, like commit a crime, right? right? right. So you wouldn't say somebody committed heart failure, right? You would say they died by heart failure. So So I was educated last week by somebody, um, Ann Moss, that I interviewed that her son died by suicide. And she said that it used to be a crime, an actual crime. And they used to be charged. The family used to be charged and they were not allowed to bury the person that died by suicide. So, So it's more of a respect. Forget about the fact that it's not a crime. It's not at all what it was then that then they used to be charged by committing suicide because it was something illegal. Oh my God. I mean, as if the family isn't in pain enough. I mean, that's, that's just, I didn't realize that's why it was called committed. Yeah. She educated me last week. And from now on, I try, I try to do, and I was so impressed that you said die by suicide. I'm happy. I'm happy. No, you know, it's, we, we all can learn. And I just learned the other day to say, rather than to say my mom is bipolar, I'm, I was taught to say my mom has bipolar because right. my mom's not defined by her mental illness. I like, that. I, like yeah. that. I try to use uh, struggling with. That's, struggling, a, that's good. Struggling with because it's now we struggle with something, but it doesn't mean that it has to last and it's a struggle. I agree. And the struggle comes and goes. So, so it's interesting. But um, as long as we give respect for what it is, because it's really such a hard topic. So I want to go back to your great grandfather. How old was he when he died by suicide? You know, that's a really good question. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not 100% sure. Did he ever rebuild himself after the Great Depression or he died during the Great Depression? So it was like right after. I know my grandfather was only about 14 or 15. Oh, and so he, he was young. Right. So he had to become the man of the house with a younger brother and take care of his mom. And they had to sell everything. You know, they had to get rid of the Rolls Royce and all their help, which is, you know, of course, not the end of the world, but But in his mind, it was, I have to, I'm going to do everything I can to build myself up. And he ended up never being able to afford college because he had to support his family. And I think he always kind of had a little chip on his shoulder and he didn't love his mother and, and his brother became addicted to alcohol. And So yeah. was your grandmother an easy person? Not your great grandmother, your grandmother, the one that married your grandfather. So this is the third wife, Susie, who passed away. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to, I know it's crazy to 
explain all of the details. Let's see if you can follow. So my grandfather, Robert, who's the one that jumped from the high rise on Wilshire and Beverly Glen, he was married to Doris, who died by suicide when my mom was just 14. My grandfather, six months later, married this like Swedish model. Mm-hmm. My mom had just lost her mom by suicide and then he married her. And, you know, he, he, he had that kind of like macho, egotistical, womanizing ways, you know, the Mad Men era of real estate and, and power. power, exactly. Um, and from there, he divorced Brit and then met my grandma Susie, who actually was a Holocaust survivor, never had children of her own, married my grandfather when she was just about 47 or 48. She was an opera singer who um, got a scholarship to Juilliard. She married my grandfather when I was about 47 or 48, and she really took me under her wing. I was this sweet little baby girl that she wanted to kind of save from my mom's bipolar, manic ways. Because my mom never got therapy and, and got over, you know, the trauma of losing her mother and finding her mother. Right. You know, my mom also got addicted to drugs and was, you know, a lot of times when you're very manic, you do things that are inappropriate, whether it's sexually or otherwise, and was having affairs. And, you know, she was spiraling downward. And sadly, at a young age, I started to do the same thing. So Susie, Mm. who wasn't related to me biologically, stepped in. Mm. But one of the reasons why it was so important for me to go on this journey and write is because I have two beautiful daughters of my own. And I just wanted to understand mental illness and how things get passed down the family line Mm -hmm. so I could stop it and continue the cycle. It's interesting that you say that because um, I interviewed a neuroscientist and she says that it's literally generations back, that we come with a generation, it's four or five generations back. We can stop it by redoing, reinventing our brain with neuroplasticity. And there is a way to change the DNA of of the mental illness that's being passed down. Well, that's very promising. That's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean that you don't have it, but you can change the outcome of it for the next generation. So let's say you're born with, um, one, one will be born, I don't want to say you, so one will be born with bipolar or depression, anxiety or something like that, or will have it if they catch it and they're working on it and they're willing to change the neuroplasticity in their brain, they can actually change it for the next generation and break the cycle that it goes over and over and over. Well, you know, and, and so I have a question for you, Matana. So you suffered from anxiety and depression, yes, correct? Yes. So do you talk about it openly? I know you have some very young children, but do you talk about it with your older children? Oh, so that, all of them. Okay. All but see, that's them. so wonderful because I do the same with my daughters. They, you know, we talk about, oh, Grammy was bipolar then, or oh, Adam was addicted to drugs then. Or right. Because having those, the, the language and, and knowing the history, that potentially could stop them early enough, right? Right, right. I was actually, um, I interviewed my husband the other day. To oh, I, I can't wait to listen to that. <laughs> to see what his point of view, what was it like coming into a marriage with a wife that had no symptoms of mental illness and three kids later, suddenly she has this full episode of depression and anxiety. When I asked, and one of the outcomes, he said, and now our fa- all of our kids are very familiar with the terms and aware, and they treat it like any other illness, like a heart failure or or a broken toe, or whatever it is, it's not something that they're embarrassed or shamed about, and it's and an open, so open conversation. I I never knew to be ashamed of it. That's the truth. I don't know why. Maybe it was part of being being very naive. But from day one, when I was first diagnosed with depression, I never shied away from it. I was so determined to find a way to heal it, and I'm. The truth is, I think it's because I knew I was well before and I had the potential to go back to it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would be brave enough if I grew up with it. I'm not sure. I can't. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you definitely, your personality seems very open. 
So you're you're not one to hide. Probably. Yeah, but but there's no way to know if I yeah. It. There's no way to know. But I just was determined to heal, and I knew that I won't be able to heal in a secret. And I wasn't embarrassed about it. I don't know why I was not embarrassed. Well, about that's it. wonderful. And yeah. and you know, I would think that like had it been a few generations back, it might not have oh, even been a word. You exactly. know, it was melancholy or right. you know whatever they right. use. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your grandfather, once he died. Yes. So you said you were given permission to go back to the building where he jumped from. What, when you say you were given permission for years, it was not accessible? Yeah. It's, okay. So this is all part in the memoir, but basically, so I call her Grandma Susie. Grandma Susie stopped talking to my mom and my uncle, not not one uncle, but another uncle. So my grandfather had three children. So he stopped talking to the children on the West Coast, my mom and my uncle. And I think it was partly because she blamed them for my grandfather being depressed, mm-hmm. which is a horrible thing to do. Mm-hmm. And my mom and my uncle Johnny were kind of in a way pointing fingers at Susie. And we never saw a suicide note. And we, you know, so we didn't know what had happened with Susie. And yet Susie was the person that saved me. I mean, whereas my brother kind of went down this rabbit hole and ended up being getting addicted to crystal meth and becoming homeless. I know it's really crazy to think and thank God it's such a happy ending. And I'll tell you about him in a minute. She was the one that saw potential in me and pulled me out of my surroundings and showed me that there was a different world by sending me to this European summer camp in Switzerland and showing mm-hmm. me, it, 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 you know, kind of t- just removing me completely from my surroundings. And it really showed me and opened my eyes. And even though after my grandfather passed away, we kind of lost touch, I I began to reach out to her because I realized that I was an adult and I could have my own relationship with her. Mm. And she was a very private person. Like I said, when I asked if my grandfather had a manuscript, she led me to believe it never existed. And part of that could be because my, what my grandfather wrote was very salacious and mm. including affairs and call girls. I mean, it really was, and, you know, very eye-opening. And, and, and then you also wonder like, you know, a little bit egotistical. And yet, you know, you have to say like, oh my God, here's a man whose wife and brother and father all died by suicide. Yes. So I was not allowed to like look through drawers at her house because she was so private, not until she passed away was I given a key by her accountant to go in and look through personal. Oh, so you couldn't even ask her if she knew about all this. Well, I, I had tried asking and she led me to believe it no longer existed. And so, she, the, so she didn't know about it. She must have, because now towards the end, she developed dementia, but I mean, it was in the files, you mm-hmm. know, she hadn't gotten rid of it. including the suicide note was also in the files. So he basically kept a diary. Okay. So he had two manuscripts. One was a business manuscript that of his 50 years in real estate that he hired a ghostwriter for. Mm -hmm. And then the other was a more personal, like, you know, funny anecdotes about business that he, you know, happened on the tennis courts in in New York or, but very little about my mom and Doris, her mom. So, you know, things that I was like really wanting more from, but enough that sent me on a journey to fill in the missing pieces. And that was a whole other mystery. There were a lot of missing pages in his personal manuscript. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did your mom know about all this? Did you well, share it with her? Yes, I did. And you know, she didn't really want to read it. It was too hard for her to mm-hmm. read. And I offered it to my cousins. I offered it to my uncles. And I, I was really the only one that wanted to go on this search and, and understand and ask questions. Mm-hmm. And Maybe you were the only one that was strong enough because you don't deal with mental health, thank God. Yeah. Maybe you had the ability to to take it all in because someone that suffers with depression, anxiety, bipolar, anything dramatic can trigger 
an episode or take them down a very bad road. So maybe you're the only one with the strength to really gather the information, process it, and take it to somewhere healthy versus somewhere very unhealthy. I mean, I definitely think that is a possibility, but I also have cousins that don't suffer. Should I say suffer? You could say suffer, yeah. (laughs) That don't suffer from um, mental health issues and they just, you know, had no desire to dig in like I did. It's a painful reality to read all this and to find out all these it is the, and, the lies that everybody were was living were living, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it I also was digging up my own past and thinking mm-hmm. about what happened with my parents' divorce and and my mom kind of moving my brother and I to the wrong side of town, which, you know, I look back, it's, it wasn't the end of the world, but you know, when you're a teenager and and your life gets turned upside down and she moves in with a boyfriend, that's not a great, you know, role model and, and, and all of those things, you know, it, it, it definitely is disruptive. So I was going back and kind of digging up ghosts and yeah, I developed TMJ. I wasn't sleeping. I was having all these issues, but then in the end, after, you know, the dust settled and I was able to see everything really clearly, it was like my own incredible therapy. And my mom and I have truly never been closer. We are so open with one another. That is, And I'm so grateful. That is unreal. Did you go to therapy together? Well, okay. So I did end up going to therapy with her after she was diagnosed with bipolar. And it was the first time I had ever gone to therapy with her. And she had this wonderful psychiatrist. While I was sitting in his office with her, I really did have that moment of coming to realize like all those times I judged my mom and was so embarrassed by her and wanted to say like, come on, just get your act together. Stop embarrassing me. Or Mm -hmm. why do you have to say things like that? Or whatever it was over the years, or why do you have to dress like that or whatever? I realized that like a lot of this was not her fault. I mean, it truly, like she, she ended up needing to take three mood stabilizers to, um, get even and found such compassion and such sympathy for her and looked at her so differently. And that's what, you know, I, 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 I can almost guarantee that's your, one of your goals too, is to help people find that compassion and look at others with, with open eyes. As I'm listening, I'm like, I want to ask her, how, how did you do that? Because it's very nice in theory. In theory, yes, you know, you say they're mentally ill, that it's not about you, it's not personal. But the bottom line, those voices that you hear or those memories that you have are still there. And it's very hard to, to separate the emotion from, from the fact of who did it and the reason behind it. So how do you do that? How many years is this going on that you basically forgave her and you came, became best friends? I would say... Let's see, I am 48 now. So honestly, probably like 45 years, (laughs) 44 years. But I've always been a very forgiving person because I I understand if if you hold on to that anger, who does it affect the most? You. I understand and, that, but, right? but yeah, we know that and we read all these inspirational right. things, but when we're in it, who taught you that? Who taught, who gave you that muscle? Was your father like that? Who yeah, well, okay. So w- one thing I will say about my mom is that she, it, you know, she was always so loving, always so mm-hmm. loving. Like during, even, you know, during some of the inappropriate things, there was never a moment where I, I didn't feel loved or cared for. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure there were, you know, this was the eighties in the Valley growing up, there was very little parenting going on. Mm -hmm. So different from how I'm raising my kids. It's just a different day and age and place, uh, for, for our comparative generations. I think that my mom being such a kind of, despite having parents that weren't emotionally available to her, went kind of the other way and always was 
very kind and loving and the first person to give her last dollar to the person on the street just taught me a lot of, you know, important values as far as family being important and um, money not being important, those kinds of things. And I don't know. I, I guess I've just always been that kind of eternal optimist forgiver. Now, granted, she, you know, she had never done anything blatantly mean or horrible to me. Right. It just was embarrassing. And right. Yeah. At what point did you realize that she was not well? Well, okay. So there was a moment. I mean, you know, all my life, I knew there wasn't something right. I mean, even as a teenager, and she would blame it on PMS or whatever, and I didn't know any better. Um, But the real kind of like climax to everything was when she had a bout of prolonged mania. And this was right before she had her, actually, no, this was after she had gotten her proper diagnosis. But what ends up happening is if you're, and and, you know, I'm not speaking from experience, I'm speaking from what I've learned, is that when you are bipolar, the mania is this natural high and it feels really good sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. You stay up all night, you get a lot done, you feel great. And you don't want to start taking these medications that take Mm -hmm. away that mania. And so my mom was not really taking her medications and Mm -hmm. she was having this long bout of prolonged mania, which Mm -hmm. means less and less and less sleep and less and less and less sleep can lead to psychosis. Mm. And my mom had a psychotic break where she was, you know, accusing her husband um, of stealing and, and, you know, the F wanted to get the FBI and, and, you know, she, she just was acting totally irrational. She was getting to the point of being threatened to be thrown into a psych ward. Uh, psych ward. And, and that, of course, was her worst fear because both of her parents went into the psych ward. Uh. Both, both of her parents uh, had electric shock therapy. Mm. And if that happened to her, then she was following that same line and mm. look what happened to them. Oh my gosh. I know. So what? Ha- so once she she decided that she's going to take her life into her hands and be more into her medicines and her psychiatrist and her treatment. Did everything change? Yeah. It was, it was incredible. Truly. I mean, you know, look, I, I'm not advocating big pharma by any stretch, but these medications truly did help my mom. Right. And overnight I was able to, where my mom used to come down and stay with me, um, I just, I would have to like make excuses and, and leave the house. I just couldn't handle her pressured speech, which is a byproduct of mania of like fast talking and talking all the time to then after she was properly diagnosed and, and seeking therapy and really kind of not running from her diagnosis, she'd come and stay with me. And I would, it was the opposite. I wanted to sit with her. I wanted to be with her. I wanted to talk. I wanted to, mm-hmm. it, it was, it was incredible. And, but I also think there was also, she was appreciative by me, of me that yeah. I wasn't shaming her anymore, that mm-hmm. I was like opening up my heart and understanding mm-hmm. her. And so there was that shift as well. I like that. So she realized that you were stopping to judge her and accept right. her. And then her, she had, she was able to be herself and that comfort came on her. And That's she right. said, okay, maybe it's worth staying on my medication. It's worth being stable. Yeah. Yes, you take away the mania, which I understand after speaking to a few people that their parents struggle with bipolar, that the mania is something they crave because it's such a high. Um, right. And my mom is a very funny person. She's, you know, she thinks she's a comedian and she can be really funny, but she was really worried that her personality would be dulled. Yeah. And this is what they're worried about. Was yeah. her was her personality dulled? I have to be honest, and I'm sure she'll listen to this at some point. Um, it, you know, it definitely her energy definitely dropped. She wasn't her like wild Lori self who would like come in and visit the grandkids and like do push-ups, right? <laughs> and like hop up and be wild and turn on the music and run around. You know, she, some of that is in fact missing. And yeah. you know, along also, she's a creative, and sometimes you know these bipolars miss that mania to fuel that creativity. Absolutely. You know, as I just said the other day, like look at the Beatles, you know, they're the most prolific creative 
bad. There was no mental health issues there. So it's just, you know, it's, it, it sometimes becomes an excuse. I think each one is so individual. And so individual. Right. But I'm hearing this over and over and over about the fact that they... They, they were creatives, they had personality, they were fun, and then they were afraid to lose it. So they were trying to get off the medication, but then the low was so low. I, I'm, he, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern because yeah. the more interviews I'm having, the more people I'm speaking to, I'm seeing a pattern that this is something. And my heart breaks for these people because they have to choose between life and losing their personality, which which is hard. It is hard. hard. I just interviewed um, someone who was explaining that you go see a doctor when you're depressed, Mm -hmm. but you don't always go see a doctor when you're manic because you feel great sometimes. never, unless somebody takes you to the doctor. Right. Unless it's prolonged mania, because my mom did get to a point where she said, you know what? I don't want that kind of mania anymore. I I can't handle it. I think she got to the point where she, like she, she got even again and realize I don't want to go back to that extreme. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's called bipolar because it's pulls, it's opposite. And, and it was just like swinging even further. Mm-hmm. So, and she decided no more. Yeah. And I mean, I, I will say my daughters, her granddaughters were a very big reason. You know, they said they, they kind of meant said something to her there was an incident where she took them to the market and and was talking to everybody for hours and they were like grammy can we leave and you know my mom didn't want to hear it from me or my brother or her husband but you know from the mouth of babes it's a different you know she she was able to kind of hold that mirror up it's amazing that she grasped that and she heard she read between the lines because people that are without bipolar don't even read between the lines of that, you know? That's right. So, so I, I I admire her for that. It's amazing. Yeah, no, my mom has so much to admire about. She really, she's a very special woman. And I, you know, that's why I'm saying, like, I look at her and I'm like, the irony is that my grandfather wrote a book called Survivor, but ultimately my mom, after losing both parents and, and having a, a pretty rough life in many respects. She's the ultimate survivor. Hero. Yeah. And, 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 and raised children to be really loving and despite it all. I'm looking at you and I keep on thinking, wow, she's so lucky that she came out. Okay. Like you're so balanced. You're so loving. You're so caring. You're so beautiful. You have a marriage, two children. You're a writer, right? You're right writer. Yeah. You're creative. You you have a big heart, and it could have been a disaster. It could have been a disaster. You could have followed the footsteps and be the victim of a, of somebody that had a mom that was bipolar, great grandfather that died to suicide, lots of shame, and you chose to just be alive, make a life, move forward with all the challenges. That's admirable. Wow. Well, oh my goodness. That, thank you for all those compliments. Oh my God. Um, you know, and, and also that is part of this memoir that I'm writing is that someone like Susie, who of no blood relationship came in and in so many ways rescued me. And, you know, it, it, it's sometimes people that aren't part of your family. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though she was, she married my grandfather, but you know, there's so many, you can step in and save someone and, you know, acts of kindness can make all the, you know, difference in the world. Why do you think she was so motivated to step in? So, you know, I think she married my grandfather when I was only a year old. And I was a cute little girl and I was a little girl she never had. And she would take me shopping for party dresses and take me out for teas. I just loved it because my mom was a wild hippie and, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, saw this other side and thought, Ooh, I kind of like, I enjoy this. And she saw that I enjoy it, enjoyed it. And I was a good student despite all the trouble I got into as a teenager. And I think she just, she saw my potential and she was able to see through what my mom was doing and and didn't want me to she she became a safety net for me so since you were very little your mother was not well like a baby i mean you know it it yes i i think she was my mom says she thinks 
in retrospect, she probably was bipolar since she was 14 and discovered her mom's suicide, you know, but she, she handled it, she masked it, but she also took various forms of drugs over the years to help her sleep or to help mask the depression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, she wasn't well, but I, you know, there were a lot of years that I just thought, oh, she's just wild. You know, Mm -hmm. I I didn't know any better. You were just like a little bit embarrassed by her, but you didn't think she was not well until later on in your life. Yeah. I just, I I used to like kind of laugh it off and say like, oh, she's just eccentric. Mm -hmm. It was my own kind of like coping mechanism. Right. But, you know, I was, I wasn't spending a lot of time at home. Right. I want to talk about your father because I hear a lot about your mother. Yes. Tell me about your father. Okay. So my dad is a criminal defense attorney. He's from Chicago. He has been, he's still practicing. So over 50 years, he married my mom uh, when they met in Los Angeles. My mom came out from New York and my dad came out from Chicago and they were young when they got married. Actually, my mom was, and maybe not young to you, but 23 and 27 or 28, Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And they had my brother and me. I was actually first. And I would say I was about 10 years old when they got divorced. Mm -hmm. And then my dad was not thrilled, of course, to find out that his wife was having affairs and doing all these things. So they got divorced and um, my dad kept the big house in the hills. And, you know, I think my mom let him out of guilt and, and we moved to, as I say, quote, the wrong side of the tracks. And um, my dad ended up getting married a few years later to a woman named Sonia and they had two boys. So I have two half brothers Mm -hmm. and my dad is now uh, divorced from his third marriage. Wow. And here's the thing about my dad. He is like a real man's man. He loves sports. He loves to gamble. He's really handsome and, and outgoing. And everyone wants to set my dad up because he's, you know, he's a great guy. But, you know, he was there for me, but he also was, you know, starting a new family, had a new wife and, and was probably like frustrated with my mom Mm -hmm. at the time. Did he step in and save me in so many words? No, that was Susie's role. Did you go to her visitation by him or your mother? Yeah, I started, you know, it started how divorce sometimes works. It's like every other weekend, but then I started feeling not as welcome uh, and, you know, as a teenager and, and wanting to be with my friends and, and not have to like pack my bag to go there and then go be with friends. So, and like I said, it was very lax, the parenting styles of the eighties. Mm. Um, so it, it was, it was different. And, and I, I saw how my dad was different with his second family, much more in tune with the boys, much more involved in their lives than he was in, my brother Adam and I. Do you think that your mother had the affairs because she didn't get enough attention from your dad? I do. Yeah, I do. My dad was working and, you know, young, young, 27, 28, working tons of hours. And yeah. And my mom also was the time, you know, she was like 33, which is I guess some would say a prime of your life. And Mm -hmm. she was wild, you know, she wanted to go out. She didn't want to be stuck at home with little kids. Were you upset at her? Well, I didn't know, you know, I, at the time when I was little, I don't think I I understood any of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's only in hindsight that you look back, but yeah, there were moments. I mean, I remember seeing my dad cry and I had never seen him cry. And I was really angry with my mom. Mm. And, and my dad never spoke poorly about her. You know, I, I actually really give my parents a lot of respect. I wrote an essay about this called um, Divorced Parents Don't Have to Suck for Laura Wasser. She is like the divorce attorney to the school. I like that. But um, anyways, I wrote it for her blog because, but my parents, what they did do that was right was they never spoke poorly about one another. And now they're fantastic friends. Really? So, yeah, it's really amazing. So when it's Thanksgiving or any of the holidays, um, they're at my house and everybody's laughing and getting along. There are times when my mom comes in to visit and my dad and my mom and my girls and we'll just all go out to dinner. And yeah, so- Both you know, divorced now. 
yeah, they're all divorced, but everybody gets along. So it's this kind of weird blended family. And, yeah. and maybe that's where I get it from. You know, my mom is forgiving. My dad's forgiving. I, you know, maybe that's, that's a very, very um, admirable trait. Very admirable. And I think one of your messages should be like, I, str- I struggle with forgiveness. I struggle with moving forward and I work on it hard. I work on it hard and I wish it was easier for me. And I know that I'm the one that suffers when I don't forgive. And if you can give tips and tricks on how to unmask that person behind and just see that when you don't forget your, forgive, you're hurting yourself and to, to f- find the empathy and to see the reasons. Some things are unforgivable. 100. I, I, I agree with that. But what happened to me never felt like it was worth cutting someone out, the relationship, right? You know, I I hear of so many families that stop, siblings stop talking to one another or, you know, a mother and daughter aren't speaking. And it just is so sad to me because, you know, yes, we've all, we all make mistakes and it's very easy to take things very personally, but often if you step back and you look at it, it's not about you. It's about, right. Right. It's whatever happened is, is that own person's something that they have to get over and deal with. And if you can just say like, okay, I am going to not forget this. I'm not saying forget, but I am going to just say, this is the past. And if I, if I can look at you with an open heart, then it's only going to behoove me. Right. Because I'm not holding on to this anger and I'm just able to move forward. Right. So it, what's that expression, you know, to just be in the present moment. Right. So like, if you're in the past, you're depressed. If you're always thinking about the future or like, Oh, what are they going to do? They're going to do this to me again or whatever. You're, you're anxious. But if you're in the moment, you're at peace. It's so true. And I work on that a lot. Maybe I should have a weekly call with Rachel to teach you oh, how oh to be I, Look, look, I, buy, I am by no means, you know, a guru, but, you know. But you have it in your nature. I could see your energy, your aura is so calm and peaceful. Oh. And it's something that I could see that you, that's in your nature. And thank God you didn't get all this mental health garbage from struggles and, and, and you're the anchor of the family. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because um, my husband is also the anchor of his family, and we laugh sometimes because you know there's a lot of kind of mashugana, you know, craziness yeah. around <laughs> us, and and we are, you know, have always been the the foundation, and and we found each other, and so it's just made an even more stable foundation. I'm so grateful to him, but I just want to say I also see that in you, Matana, a very kind of <laughs> warm, wonderful, kind, empathetic person. And just the fact that you can even admit any faults that you do have is is so, you know, goes towards, you know, exactly what you said about me. <laughs> Thank you. But it's a, it's by me, it's a lot of work. It's not something natural by me. It's not, I think I always had empathy, but I also had a lot of judgment. Always like, I was very black and white, very black and white. So I was very um, open to love and accepting anybody and, and welcoming anybody until they proved themselves wrong. And then it was very hard for me to come to center and just like, and see the, the why behind it. It's something that my husband teaches me. My husband really is the opposite of me because he has such a hard life. He had a, a very hard life growing up. So he built that muscle. I was not taught that muscle. So I had to learn it with life. And, and I realized that it was just, and I believe my episodes of depression and anxiety was a collapse of all these stuff that I shoved down that I thought it was nothing, just nothing. There's nothing, but it's all these little, not ma- nothing major, nothing major like that, that it was, I could remember a trauma, a big trauma. I had a very big, very nice upbringing, but little hurts through life that I suppressed and I didn't deal with. And I just shoved it, shoved it, shoved it. And my subconscious or my conscious wouldn't forgive. And it overflowed with an, uh, uh, an emotional breakdown. And I, I'm convinced that it was from that convinced. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, 
a lot of a little becomes a lot. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. You just made me think of something when you said, where did you get that from? Well, you know, the, the judgment, the, I was judgmental of my mom, but my mom was never judgmental of anyone. And she did teach me that. And in many respects, I think my dad too. I mean, my dad was a criminal defense attorney who represents people that are down and out, you know, people that are accused of things that, you know, who knows what. And, and he comes in and says like, you know, let's, let's, everyone is entitled to Mm -hmm. a fair trial. My mom, who is, you know, never, has never been judgmental. So I, I am grateful to have learned that. I, it's interesting also, I wonder where you maybe gained some of your judgment from. Oh, I know where I did for my father. Okay. So see, <laughs> my you father's know. very black and white. He's extremely loving, extremely, extremely loving. He'll, he loves everyone. But if somebody wrongs him, not a good thing. He'll never attack them. He'll never do anything back, but it'll be very, he'll, his saying growing up, growing up, he always says, I would, I'll forgive, but never forget. And that never forget was very strong. Like it's going to be close to myself. And I, I sometimes wonder, will he really forgive? Or is he saying that for the, he's forgiving the other one, but not releasing it from himself that never forget, hold it tight because you don't want to let go of it. And I know that I got it from him and I hope I got the good because he is a phenomenal human being, phenomenal, phenomenal. But this is what, this is part of us. So as long as we learn to to work with what we have and to notice that some traits are not perfect and to switch it around and to notice. So we we come out okay. That's true. It is true. And you know, and and again, back to like finding sympathy and empathy, like who knows what your dad had to deal with. Maybe that was what helped him get through life, you know, maybe he needed to have it black and white for him right. to move forward. What, you know, so again, there's that no judgment. Like I, I really, I want to be open-minded. I am not by any means perfect. Believe me. I, I, I have some issues in my life that I am dealing with and I, I don't really want to get into it, but it's, it, it has to do with one of my best friends, um, and politics. And, and, you know, here I am saying I'm so open-minded and yet we aren't speaking over politics. So in no instance, do I claim to be perfect? I have a lot I need to work on. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. We're human. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. I want to touch upon your brother before we end, because you said that he was, he was dealing with addiction. Yes. It was a happy end to the story. So I want to hear that happy ending. Yes, yes. Well, and my podcast is called Dear Family. Um, and my first guest was my brother. Mm. And he is such an incredibly inspirational story of overcoming just, you know, being so down and out that I knew I had to begin with him. So my brother is this very outgoing, handsome man. And he was the captain of the football team. He was a scholar athlete. He was, you know, every girl was in love with him. He, he just, you know, everyone loves Adam. He just, he has that personality to this day, like the life of the party, but he was ADHD mm-hmm. and he was never properly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he also of course had the traumas of, parents separating, uh, the influence of my mom's boyfriend, um, on my brother's life, like exposing him to marijuana at way too young of an age. Um, but my brother, meanwhile, was ADHD and, um, went through college, probably, you know, drinking like college kids do. But when he got into law school, believe it or not, he was introduced to crystal meth and crystal meth is a form of speed. What do you give kids when they are ADHD? You give them Ritalin. Ritalin is a form of speed. And that like, he had this moment of like, oh my God, I'm like Superman and I can get everything done. And for a while it worked, believe it or not, he went through law school. It's hard to imagine on crystal meth. Things started unraveling and, and obviously you can't sustain that forever. He ended up homeless living or really living out of his car until his car was repossessed. Mm. And then he got to a point where he just was like, I can't do this anymore. And I kept waiting for that phone call. Either Adam's going to be thrown in jail or they're going to tell me he's dead on the streets. So I was so grateful when 
kind of, you know, the car was repossessed because he had nowhere to go and he was tired of, of hustling and doing, you know, what he needed to do to get his next high. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to my mom and I for help. And he ended up going to this Jewish rehab called Beit Teshuva. Oh, really? And yeah, it's amazing. It's a 12-step program, but it's, you know, of the Jewish faith. And it saved him. And, you know, he began with the Shabbat services and giving back and, and volunteering. And I say that he is now the biggest mensch you've ever met. Whereas before he was lying, he was stealing. He was, you know, just being a, a, a thief and a crook and anything to get that high, which is so sad that addictions push very decent, brilliant people into those situations. Cut to 13 years later, he is getting married oh. to a wonderful woman. He has a very successful business in Brooklyn called Jane Motorcycles. It's a lifestyle brand where they not only build motorcycles, but it's a coffee shop. They make, they do leather jackets. They, so it's kind of like a, it's more of a hipster vibe. Yeah. But, but it's very cool. You know, my brother always has had his finger on the pulse of what is cool. He, I think what I'm most proud of and that he's most proud of is that he has this weekly AA meeting in his shop. And it's very aspirational. It's all men's. And people come and, and get sober because they see all these other men that have worked so hard to remain sober. And even if it's day one or the, their 10th year, they have this community. And yeah, so he is doing mm -hmm. fantastic. But, you know, there were, there were those definite years where I was, you know, a new mom worrying about my own children and then worrying about my mom and my brother. And so wow. I'm so grateful. <gasps> it's a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. How long is your brother clean? Yeah. 13 years. 13 years. Soon to be 14. Yeah, How old right is up. he now? So he is two years younger than me. So he's 46. And he's getting married now for the first time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. In New York? Yeah. I need to go to the wedding. <laughs> Are you coming to the wedding? I will be. Yeah, we'll, we'll get together. In yeah, New York. <laughs> wow. And you think that, that he started the AA as a way of giving back? Yes. Yeah. Well, so, you know, he, and, and he talks about this. He, he said that like getting sober in a place like Los Angeles, and I'm assuming New York is actually a good thing. There are so many wonderful meetings to go to. And mm -hmm. he went, he started off in Los Angeles before he moved to, to New York, but he said that, you know, he would go to these meetings and see all of these really successful people that he knew growing up that he had no idea were drug addicts or alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And he, he said to himself, if I ever get to a point where I can give back, I will. Do you ever fear that he'll go back? I do. But I also think that he has so much to live for now that he knows better. And just the fact that he is, he, I mean, I'm sure, you know, again, you and I both can relate to this. Giving back feels so good. Yeah. And, and it, 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 in a way it's a little bit selfish, right? Like it's its own drug. It's its own drug. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he's got this meeting. He's now, uh, um, what's it called? A sponsor. He sponsors people all the time. He gets phone calls, you know, in the middle of the night to help people. So yeah, I, I of course I do worry, like if something especially stressful happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I mean, his life has never been better. Do you think he's on medication? You don't have to share if you think oh, it's no. private. No, 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 I actually do not. I don't think he is. I mean, I, I know he drinks a lot of coffee. It's part of his, right. his business. If you, if you consider that, I don't. But no, I don't. He's not. You don't. Wow. No. So yeah. he's completely came around. Did he go to yeah. a lot of therapy? Um, I, I think these AA meetings are therapy, but yes, he does do. He goes to therapy. Wow. And, his, and his wife-to-be. Does she understand this history? Does she have a history also that they can relate to each other or yeah, she doesn't know, really know that part of him? And she Oh yeah, no, she part. knows. She knows everything. She knows everything about him, loves him for who he is. He, she is not sober, so she can have a glass of wine 
with him and it doesn't bother him. But it's interesting, you know, what Adam says, and, you know, here I'm talking about him, but he said that even though he never had a problem with alcohol, he still calls himself an alcoholic. Because if you have an addictive personality like that, if you have one beer, it could turn into 20. Mm -hmm. Whereas he calls me a quote unquote normie, like a normal person, Mm -hmm. because I can have one glass of wine and be done. Right. I don't have I don't have that problem. Right. So he's basically addictive personality. So whatever is that escape, he will escape with that addictive personality. Right. Wow. It's so it's I I feel like these people are amazing because they really take control of their lives and they really focus on what matters and we're not aware of the struggles they have and what they need to overcome every single day to get through the day but by being an, ad- an addict. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And with this opiate crisis, I mean, there's more people than you know, you know, and some of like, you know, sadly, some of the teachers, some of the people in our community that we look up to and respect, you don't know what battle they're fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Rachel. (laughs) I can't wait till your book comes out because I'm going to be reading it. Wow. Wow. Because I feel like we just touched upon the tip of the iceberg of all this incredible happy ending, but still sadness because there was so much pain and loss. But but look, look, I think you are the epitome of hope, the epitome of hope, because who would think after so much um, death by suicide and so much pain and betrayal and hurt and mistrust and addiction, something like you would come out with two beautiful children, a happy marriage, your brother that's about to get married. What is more of a story of hope? than you. Oh, well, I so appreciate that. And, you know, and, and I love your slogan about being together, together Together is better. better. And, you know, and not to sound corny, but I, my slogan is that we are only as sick as our secrets, because I really think that, you know, unless we talk about these things, Mm -hmm. we can't take care of them, right? It's like, you can't acknowledge a, a bleeding wound, unless unless you look down and see, oh, I'm bleeding, right? Right. <laughs> right? So I, I I just I think I, I'm grateful to you also because I you know I think together we are better, and and this has been such a great conversation. Yeah, really a great conversation. Where can people read your? blog, your essays. Okay. Well, so everything is on my website, which is rightnowrachel.com. And that's right with a W. And from there, you can um, click to my medium blog page or to my podcast page. And you can find my podcast, Dear Family, on any of the platforms like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. Okay. So we're going to have these um, links in the show notes. Thank you. Is there anything else you would like to share before we go? No, no. I just, you know, I, I wish us both success in this. You know, I just want you to know I'm very grateful to you. And um, I wish your community happiness and good mental health. Yeah. And we should really together break the stigma and bring more conversations. If you want to be a guest on Rachel's show, and if you think that you can share something about your family, uh, a message of change, of, of forgiveness, uh, a dear family story, you could reach out to Rachel. Is that correct? Absolutely. I would love that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So I'm right now, Rachel with a W at on all my um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, all of those things. Yes. And we're going to, maybe in a year, we'll catch up and see where we're both, uh, how we impacted this, um, breaking the stigma and opening the conversation and how things unfolded. And when this book is coming out, I would love to have you back on that we can discuss the book. And Wonderful. I, I, I look forward to that. Thank you. I have one question that I ask everybody. Sure. What does hope mean to you? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I think it's just optimism that everything is going to be fine and work out and that there is abundance for everyone. I think hope means love and light and, and, but really it's, it's that optimism that tomorrow's going to be better than today. And today's great. Tomorrow's going to be better. And yes, we're going to have our ups and downs, but 
it's going to continue to go up. I think I want to, it was hard for me to ask you that question because I feel like I'm looking at hope. So I wanted to say hope equals Rachel (laughs) (laughs) because you really look like a story of hope. And I'm like, the message is so strong. Rachel, look what she came from. Look what she's doing. Look at this amazing message she's trying to bring to this world. The light that she's trying to, to shine upon everybody with her energy, with her love, with her openness. So thank you so much for joining us. Really, thank you so much. And I wish you best, best, best of luck in your your journey of your podcasting, writing, and anything else that comes your way. And I hope to meet you soon personally. I know. I feel like we know each other so intimately from our (laughs) conversations. Yes. So maybe I'll crash the wedding for... Oh my God. (laughs) Well, yeah. And so actually, just a little side note, my brother is getting married in the Bahamas. Like a... Oh, I'm not crashing that. And then then, like he's going to have a party in New York. I don't know when that is. Okay, I'm not crashing the Bahamas. (laughs) But I am going to definitely see you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So have a great evening and thank you again for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Matana. You take care. Air hugs to you. Yes, yes. And for all your listeners, thank you so, so much for joining us on this fun conversation, deep conversation, exciting, some sad moments, but at the end, it's a a happy ending story. So thank you for listening. You can see us at hopetorecharge.com and we'll see you next time. Bye till next time. Okay, goodbye. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.